Hello, and welcome back to The Hub. I know it's been a little, and by little, I mean a long time since the last episode. I've taken a bit of a hiatus with college starting and a bunch of different life things going on, but we're back, and I hope we're going to be better than ever. Um, I have a feeling that the end of this year and the new year is going to bring a lot of new opportunities, a lot of new interviews, new episodes, and just some great conversations overall with some really, really incredible guests. I'm really excited to have you guys listen to a conversation I had with cinematographer Rain Lee. She's an icon in the film industry. She has worked on some incredible projects that you'll hear more about. She was born in China and went to school in the UK and then lived in Los Angeles. So she's a very, very worldly woman. We talked a lot about what it's like to be a woman in the film industry. And we discussed her creative process and just her thoughts about what it's like and how empowering it is to hold a camera and to bring a vision to life. So I am so excited for you guys to listen to this conversation and hopefully learn a thing or two. Hi, where are you? I'm actually in Los Angeles right now. Ah, where about in Los Angeles? Um, I'm in Pasadena. Where are you right now? I'm in Beijing. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, So are you based in Beijing full time? Uh, right now I am. So I was in LA for eight months and I just got back from LA a month ago because I just uh, gave birth to a baby. And, oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And so I brought her back to see uh, her grandparents. And I think we're going to be here for a while, at least until next Chinese New Year or something, you know. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, congratulations. So tell me, tell me on- about Joy Club. No, I'm, I'm curious about the website, the podcast. So can you tell me more about it? Yeah. So it first kind of started off as like a podcast to discuss kind of like intersectional identities with um, like Asian identities, because I think through COVID, it was something I really struggled with kind of growing up in a community where there weren't really that many other Asian people. Um, And I think I just felt very insecure in that area of my identity for a while, um, especially through the pandemic. So then I started this podcast and I kind of just like cold called and cold emailed a lot of people and I got a couple interviews. And I think that was just like a really great experience for me. And yeah, so I hope to continue it for a long time. Wow. So what do you, how, what happened to you uh, personally, you think, during COVID? Because I was, I was in LA at the beginning of pandemic and when um, it would hit LA at just the beginning, you know, so like end of March, if you remember. And so I didn't really feel the fear or the, the Asian, anti-Asian feeling then back then, but then I obviously heard about it when I'm gone. So how do you feel about that? Um, I think just like in, 
my own community and like in my very small little neighborhood, which is predominantly, you know, a white neighborhood, I think there were just a lot of little comments and also just reading about like the hate crimes that happened in the rest of the country, not even anywhere near me. I think it kind of just like ignited a little bit of just insecurity, not so much fear around being Asian, but just a little right, insecurity. Right. Um, just because like the schools I've always gone to, it's not so heavily like Asian dominated. Um, and I also never spoke the language because my mom is from Taiwan and my dad is from Korea. So they don't even speak the same language. Um and so I never learned either. And I think that was also kind wow. of just a source of me being insecure in my own Asian identity. Um, right. Just because I feel like a lot of people who can speak the language feel more connected to their yeah. you know, culture. But for me, that yeah. was never really, I don't know, that never really clicked for me. Interesting. So you don't speak Chinese or Korean. No, but I'm actually learning Korean in school right now. Uh, how old are you? You look very young. I'm 18. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm proud of you. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, I'm a freshman you, right now in college. You, you live with your parents or you live on your own? Um, I'm actually back home for Thanksgiving right now, but I am actually in school in New York. So. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wow. Okay, well. I'm very, you know, flattered that we reached out by you. And especially now you talk about you're 18 and you're Asian. And I feel and I feel like I'm more flattered because I'm all about supporting young Asian filmmakers or, you know, just people, you know, especially women. I think it's amazing what you do because I when I was pregnant and then I was very struggling about taking a whether if I want to take a pregnant photo, you know, most people would take like this kind of big belly pregnant photo. And I thought, oh, that's very cliche. And I felt like being a cinematographer myself, and I was very like picky about who I would want to invite to be a photographer. But in the end, I literally went along. I was going through Instagram. I reached out to this a 20-year-old uh, Vietnamese, Chinese, um, a mixed, you know, like uh, a, a girl. You know, she's very young. 20 and she's I just said will you be are you in LA and what are you would you be interested and literally I reached out her that morning I took the photo the next day you know and I, I, I give the birth two days after so it was very happy and I was like oh it's really cool you know and she said are you sure you want to give this thing for me and for me to take it and I never taken a pregnant photo before and I said don't worry it's the best because if you haven't done it it's, it's, it's that's exactly what I'm looking for Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm yeah. such a fan and I'm so interested in the film industry. I think I might major in film studies, um, but I really know nothing about cinematography. So I'm really excited to ask you some questions and get to know a little bit more about you. Sure, go ahead. Um, so I guess just like, can you give me a little bit of background? Like, where are you from? What do you do? Kind of just how did you get into the industry? Sure. So my name's is Raimi. I am um, from China, 
I grew up, when I was 15, I went to UK to study, but it wasn't, you know, it was more like college. There was nothing, I didn't come from a family of a film family, you know, neither of my parents are into art at all. So um, it was kind of a choice after learning a language of a year, what do I don't do? I always had a dream to be a musician. So my first choice was music. Um, I went into music production and as a part of that course, I met, you know, very interesting musicians and, and people and they want to make um, a documentary and they want to make a music video. So I got involved in one of their students, you know, they're older than me and they're more experienced. So I got involved to be this kind of assistant to be on set with a very low budget music video thing. And I fell in love with it. So I think it was like a year after there was a, um, that was more like a foundation course. So when I facing the choice of which course I'm going to take on for university, I kind of just thought about, oh yeah, you know, I was in Bournemouth at the time and Bournemouth happened to be, has the best film school in England. So, and they have, um, you know, they basically has history of kind of nurturing uh, best cinematography. So it wasn't, a cinematography wasn't a natural choice. I just thought, okay, I'm going to try. So I went in and did it. And then for the first year, we, you know, we had to learn art history and a cinema and, you know, every academic out there, it wasn't anything I was like, you know, specializing in. But then I was, because the music video shoot was so exciting for me, then I got kind of more jobs as assistant to be on set. And then gradually that was like kind of a bread and butter for me to pay for uh, my, you know, my living. And uh, and I also you know along along with other takeaway jobs and other part time jobs I had, but then I thought, oh okay, well I realized I was very interested in lighting, so that was something I was I didn't really fall in love with the camera at the beginning. I don't know why, but I was I was more fascinated about the lights. So I took a, a course aside when I was at university about cinematography and lighting, and I fell in love with it. So, you know, when you're at uni, I don't know about what you do at uni, but when we're at uni, so we everybody have a different kind of, uh, you had to make a short film and everybody have a different uh, roles. You know, one person, a director, next person, cinematographer. You know, we all have to swap around. I was just naturally, nobody really kind of jump on to be a cinematographer. And I said, oh, I do it. So I did it and I fell off ever since. Yeah. Oh, wow. When you were in uni, was there any kind of like project or film in particular that kind of like inspired you to be interested in film or being behind the camera or anything? When I was at uni, I was, yeah, I was definitely, I've become a movie fan since I got to the uni. I wasn't a movie fan. I wasn't natural. I wasn't a natural born to be a movie fan because, you know, grew up in China um, unless I think you are connected with the cultural background, as in your parents or grandparents are connected, it's very hard to access a lot of films, you know. So I wasn't really connected to that. I mean, I, you know, I watched some old, old, really classic movies, but nothing really kind of, you know, like a lot of them. So I, I become a fan because I was just fascinated about um moving images i think you know the stories the colors and that's which the why the cinematography was the most striking thing for me because i was fascinated on, in the 80s i remember when i watched once upon time in america i think that was the film that really struck me when i was uni that 
let's put a story on the side, but the cinematography and the music, because I was so interested in music and I was very sensitive, you know, sensitive to music. So I was like, wow, what an epic film. So that was something I think got me into it. And then there was Wong Kai Wai and then there was David Lynch. There was a lot of directors like that along the side of my early on, you know, study, uh, being a student time. And then it just made me fall in love more and more. Yeah. Is there anybody you've worked with in particular that has like really inspired you to keep going? Like who's someone you've worked with that you just idolize and that was like a great experience? I'm very fortunate. I feel like everybody I worked with has helped me to get to the next step because I think it's partially, I think is a mentality. I felt like, you know, I am very grateful for all the people who have I've met and worked with along my career. And whether the, some people might be very tough on me, might not actually, you know, believe in me at the beginning, or maybe putting so much pressure on me at the beginning, but whatever it is. And I think they're the, they're the you know, we call Chinese, they call Guilin, they're the important people to push me to the next level, you know? Um, I mean, I've, I've worked with Gus Van Zandt, which is a great independent American filmmaker all time. You know, very fortunate. I was only 25 years old when I worked with him. I worked with Jim, Jim Jamush, which is another uh, amazing author, filmmaker in the U.S. And I work with, I mean, Chris Doyle, like, you know, everybody know Chris Doyle, who is the most put it one of the most, you know, uh, well-known, uh, interesting, eccentric filmmakers, cinematographer, you know, in the history of cinema. I'm very, I mean, if I have to name one person, he was, he probably would be my, the guidance of the film, you know, industry. And I think he taught me, because when I was at film school, we more learned about the technical side of it. We more learned about the history side of it. The creative side of it is nothing you can, you can't be taught by a creative process. You know, everybody's have a different process. And uh, I think Chris, having met Chris when I was 20 years old, and he really just opened up my, 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 my world, you know, from uh, opportunities side. And also from really more important about really making me understand what filmmaking, what cinematography is about. It's not about, it's not only about the technical lenses, the lenses you use. It's not only about the camera you use. It's really about the vision, you know, and it's about the story, what you have. So that's something I I would say he's the most influential person of pushing me along, you know, alongside many other filmmakers in, in, in my in my career. Wow, that's amazing. So can you like describe your creative process a little bit? Like, do you draw from, I don't know, your everyday life or watching others? Like, what is your creative process and how do you kind of determine what projects you want to take on? Uh, it is, I think every creative process, every project is different. You know, some projects um, I get given by scripts, then you just, you know, you read a script and you, you see, uh, do I, um, do I, res- you know, can I see myself doing it? What that means is I can only kind of add something to it, you know, oh, does this project work worth my time to spend six months over the year to be committed to it, you know, and that may be something I've done it before. I wanted to change my style. I wanted to move on to something else. So, you know, there's just so many reasons you take a project and there's other projects that I would like as a director now, I would initiate myself, you know, like, I've written, I spent a year written about a script about um, 
a, a, a group of international travelers who live in the U.S., want to move back to go back to their own country during COVID, get trapped in the airport and become this kind of claustrophic comedy. You know, they never met each other, but they wanted, they don't want to make friends. They just want to go home. But, you know, at the beginning, they're like an enemy of each other, but in the end, they really had to tie to that, become a family to, to get back to where they're from. You know, all of that. Is, I think that with the project I initiated myself, usually a come from my life, you know, it's people I meet and my life experience. Like the, the film I directed is called um, Beijing, New York, back to in 2011. Um, it was interesting process because I was feeling struggling. I was struggling with my identity. I was like, am I English? Of course, I'm not English. Am I American? Of course, I'm not American. Am I Chinese? Yes, I am Chinese, but I don't know much about China because I left when I was very young. So, and I am a woman. There's nothing to change that. But I thought I was struggling as a female, this kind of caption about female filmmaker. And I don't want to be captioned to be a filmmaker, for a female filmmaker. I just want to be captioned as a filmmaker, you know? So there's a lot of things that was I was struggling with that was, um, I wanted to do something. And then I ended up, I was trapped in this commercial for three months in Tokyo. I ended up writing a script on my own. I never written a feature length script in my life before. You know, I was 30, what was I, 31 years old, 30 years old. So I decided after that commercial, after that script, I went back to China and to spend a considerable amount of time to learn about my culture to see if I fit in or not. You know, that's kind of that that's a different creative process. This is more like a live living explore process. Yeah. Wow, you covered so many topics. I have so many other questions. Um <laughs> so <laughs> I guess going back to when you moved to England, you were how old? 15? 15, yeah, or close to 16. Yeah. Got it. So I guess. I know we talked about like language barriers earlier, but did you speak any English when you moved there? Not really. I mean, I spoke barely any English. I mean, everything covered from school, but nothing really practically, I, you know, exercises, you know, like, hello, thank you. You know, how are you? Like the basic English school thing, you know? Yeah. So was it really difficult to kind of get like assimilated to, you know, the culture in the UK and just like connect with other people? You know, it's funny that you asked me a question. I saw the the the, new, the, the question thing. I, I I was starting remembering what happened because it's so long ago. You know, like it was sixteen. I'm like forty now. But I think to look back, I felt like I was always quite independent child when I was a kid, right? So because I I could be, you know the whole summer I could be like just like I'll be on my own. I'm just one of those kids. I'm not depressed. I wasn't. I didn't have a social you know like difficulty but it's just like my nature I can be alone you know pretty well and so I when I left I didn't have fear I was more excited about being 15 be away from my parents I think you know I mean as every teenager is like the last thing you want to do is live with your parents you know mm -hmm. and uh, so I was more like oh I didn't have I didn't know anything to be fear about like now I know so much so I would be worried about things because you you got too much to lose back then it's like oh yeah sure I'm going I didn't think about anything but I have this story which is 
interesting. So I got there and alone, um, along with this agency that all set up to connect it with the local English family where we, we stay with. And, and Bournemouth is three hour drive car ride, a three and a half hour car ride from airport. And of course, at the back at that time, they wouldn't pick up us from a car, they pick up us from a coach that take a lot of students back there. So my flight was delayed. And then, then on top of that, it's the first time I came out of China. So they put me in this medical checkup for three hours. So I was like hours, hours late behind any other people. So they left me. And then I came out of the airport alone. I had no idea where to go. And I, the first thing I thought, oh, I, I read it, you know, I pick a taxi, you know, and I didn't know, I had no idea how far universities from, you know, where I'm going is from the airport. So the car trip cost me 500 pounds or something like that. Like back then, the 400 pounds, that's the only thing I got left in my pocket. Yeah. And then I got there like 10 p.m., and then meeting with the host family. But, you know, I, I don't speak English and the driver is very struggling to understand what I'm talking about. Thank God I have a, a, a letter and says the, the address. So I give it to him. And I arrived. I remember this very clearly. And I thought, oh, my God, what happened? Like, what if, you know, what if these people are going to rob me? I'm going to rape me. I, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm so, like, you know, out of control. I have no idea. I'm gonna, that was a time first moment I felt I had a fear was about to happen but everything you know kind of turned out really well later on because they're really great people oh wow that's such a crazy story my gosh um <laughs> it's crazy for 16 years old now I, I wouldn't like who cares because I speak English you know back then I didn't speak anything right. I just felt like oh my god this oh you know this everybody's stranger what if I'm just going to be like kidnapped or something you know what parents my parents probably sent me to like they have no idea what happened to me because back then there's no cell phone right and there's no the landline I, I haven't even got there to know their landline number yet so there's no there's no way to connect with my parents for two weeks yeah I was just thinking about that like even when I was 15 which was honestly only like four, three, four years ago, I can't imagine going to another country all by myself where I didn't speak the language and having to, you know, navigate my way every day through, I don't know, just like basic things. And then also having no like form of communication or like an iPhone. That sounds so I know. I know. but it's so impressive. I know, but not so impressive. like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I guess kind of touching on, you know, what you were talking about, about being a woman in the film industry. Do you think you've kind of reached that place yet of just identifying as a cinematographer, not a female cinematographer? Or do you think it's kind of like a lifelong struggle or something you're still trying to grapple with? Oh, you know what? I don't really give a shit anymore. <laughs> That's a good you answer. Know, I don't really give a shit because at the end of the day, I'm a woman. And at the end of the day, I can be a cinematographer, I can be a director, I can be a, a whatever I do. And it doesn't really matter. It just, it just, it just, it's just a, a name, you know? Because I felt like it, it comes from being more confident in my own skill set, being more confident in my own skin and being be more comfortable with my myself. Because before I remember I was in my 20s starting a career in the UK, it was very, very hard. And I think it was 
first of all, I was very young and it's very, you know, most of the cinematographer back then because we're still using film, you know? And so most of the cinematographers like, you know, over forties, you know, that's like the, the youngest and I was 20. So people automatically thinking you just as a kid, you know, which is fine. I was a kid, but I didn't, I was such a rebel. So I didn't want to admit I was a kid. So I was just kind of struggling with that. And second of all is I was a very um, skinny and a woman. And then they look at me and I like to dress up, you know, like as a girl, I like, you know, fuck this. Like I, I'm a girl. I don't care what I do. I just want to dress up, you know. So they put me in the box, felt like I think I, I'm getting weird looks all the time. So, oh, who did she sleep with to get this job? You know, you get to kind of misunderstood that way. So I was used to be before a period, I was overcompensating my look. And so I would dress up like a boy, you know, I would dress up like kind of a man to kind of look cool or look professional. But now it's like, I don't give a shit, you know, because I felt like back then I was not very confident in what I do. So every other opinion about my appearance, about my gender about my identity bothers me you know but at the end of the day I can't change my identity I, I am Chinese it is what it is it doesn't matter what passport I'm holding I am Chinese you know like that's my root and that's what I grew up in right I am a woman I have no interest in gender sex exchange whatsoever you know I I am I like to be look great because I think when I look great I can do a good job you know I don't want to look ugly so it's just all these things I felt like I I'm it is who I am I'm just gonna have to accept it and if if my appearance affects my work and that's a different thing but it doesn't you know my, my makeup time takes five minutes it didn't take five hours you know so it doesn't affect my professional life so it doesn't matter. So it took me a while. I think when I get to 35 is when I realize, you know what, none of that matters. Yeah. And at the end of the day, honestly, it's more badass to, you know, be a woman and to be, you know, a woman of color and be in the industry and be as successful as you are and have and be confident in your like capabilities and not focus so much on like the external or like, yeah, but one thing I can tell you that I struggle with um, for a long time when I was younger and even in my 30s, this is a very honest sharing, is, is directors are knowing to have temper, right? It's not because this person necessarily have a bad temper, it's because there's just so much puzzles you have to do, deal with on set, you know, things that you request is not there and things supposed to be arrived, not there. And, you know, just so many things go wrong, right? So you would just like, you would just like, what the, what's going on? So you still navigating with all different head of departments. So you, you know, you lose temper sometimes because you, you under so much stress and time and all of that. But when men lose temper, it's normal. Right. But when women, I would say when I lost temper, which I don't lose temper, but if I raise my voice, showing there is kind of, I was about to lose a temper or I'm very, very kind of strict about certain things. Like I'm very like, listen, you, you didn't do it right. That's not what I demanded. Or that's not what I asked for. You get reputation. So for years, when I came back to China, apparently, I remember, I don't even remember what happened on set, but I think I vaguely remember is, I request a set of equipment and they didn't have, and they didn't, they didn't tell me they didn't have. So they didn't arrive on set and they're expecting this equipment to be arrived. 
So I was very angry and was showed my, you know, kind of dissatisfaction to the producers that I need an out because this is what I what I've asked for. And you should have told me before if you didn't have it. Anyway, all the things happen. I carried a reputation to be very difficult to work with for years, you know, and that's something I I don't know what I've done differently. Maybe I would, maybe I would, as a grow up woman, I would reword differently, but I feel like I would maybe filter myself to be more, you know, maybe not too direct to the person. Maybe that's the culture I had to learn to deal with, but something I, I felt as a female director or female cinematographer that we have to work as hard as men, maybe harder just because our physicality are not the same, right? So we have, you know, 50 pound a camera for men, maybe easy peasy, but for us, it's a lot of work, you know, for a long time. And the second of all is to deal with that temper to be very strict about what you want, but at the same time had to be very kind and then you can't lose the temper. So but that things I found are very difficult as a woman, you know? Yeah. And I think that even extends to other industries too, even in like finance, for example, like if a woman is say a little bit bossy or more straightforward, they are like labeled as the bitch. But if a man is acts that way, then they're, you know, powerful, they're strong. And yeah, it's just such, such an unfair, it's like an unfair like view of gender that really honestly makes no sense um but yeah yeah that's you you, you know that it's not just a it's movie industry is a is a it is it goes across the board you know yeah um and i guess i didn't know you were also a director and a producer and screenwriter when you kind of direct or write a script do you think about it through the lens of cinematography and kind of the vision or is it more so about the storyline first and then the cinematography? It definitely about story first, because that's why I think I become, I naturally trans, uh, 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 transitioned from a cinematographer to a directing. It wasn't because I don't love cinematography anymore. It's just because I felt being a cinematographer only, it doesn't satisfy my um, my desire to be a filmmaker. Does that make sense? I felt like I more and more I wanted to not only care about the visual, I also want to care about the story. And I also want to have, it's like giving a child, a giving birth, right? I want to have my own, my something that has my vision, my, my vision stamp on it. So it was a natural progression. Um, well, I felt because I'm very drawn to story because cinematography, you can't just give colors. You can't make the picture pretty based on, you know, which is have to be based on the story itself anyway. So it has to help the story to be told and in a cinematic way, which is a very connected story anyway. So I think even cinematography, it comes from story. So as a director, and I feel like I'm more... Definitely more a story has to become first. And then once the story is set and then we think about how the cinematography goes. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating because I would have thought, you know, as if someone had a background in cinematography that they kind of think through that lens, especially since you started at such a young age. But yeah, it's really interesting to think about how the story comes first and how the story kind of affects, you know, the vision 
um, and how, you know, the audience receives the story. Because most most of great films, are, I, I think, I believe, in the history of cinema are never be famous because the audience relate to this color. It's just something we study. Of course, we, we put them, you know, into segregated. We studied the music section. We studied the cinematography section. We studied editing section. That's how we do a film school. But you don't pay a ticket to go to this film as a general audience to notice if the picture is great or the sound's great. And it should be all great. When it's a film is great, everything's great, you know? So it's okay. really about the story. And it makes so the audience can forget about the best cinematography is the audience come in and have this immersive experience and they forget about whatever the, the music or the sound. They've just been been there and spending 90 minutes to two hours having a great time. And that's the story goes. And the story is the most powerful tool. Yeah. What's what's one of your most favorite, if you have one, your most favorite project that you've worked on? Because I know you've worked on music videos, films, commercials. Um, maybe what's your favorite kind of like area, but then also what's your favorite specific project, if you have one? Oh, my God, I don't know my favorite project. Hmm. I don't have one because I feel like every project is very interesting, you know, and some projects are very hard, but it's very interesting. Like, you know, when I was very young, my first feature um, as a cinematographer alongside as Chris with Chris Doyle is Gus Van Sant Paranoid Park. And that film later on become one can years later. So I was oh, wow. very, you know, obviously we we didn't know it was going to one can, you know, we were just like, I was a kid and then we're filming about children or, you know, 16 year old kids and skateboarding. So what's very interesting about that is Gus Van Zandt, um, Gus was saying, we wanted experimenting how the cinematographer is. So we're going to be blindfolded and then pick lenses as whatever lens we picked from blindfolding, we're going to use it. So it was not, so let's forget about technical uh, uh, skill set so much it's about what can you do what you're given and that's kind of there's one uh, it, there's one shot that actually become a very uh, important in cinema I think people talk about that shot all the time which is with the, with the, almost like a fish eye lens and kind of look in the face back then it was very new and so that was something organic happened it wasn't something we thought about you know but it becomes something very interesting so that's something I learned um, and with Jim Jamush, I learned about, you know, you don't have to necessarily write years of script to get it done to film and then everything can be done on set because he's like a very auteur. He does this on the day on set and, you know, we would give him the script next day about what we're filming tomorrow. Wow. We never have a whole script you know and you have you did it with Tilda Swinton all these amazing actors on set and everybody just like work as as a family kind of moving forward it's more like a road trip you know that's very interesting I I mean there's so many of them so I can't really see which one is the the favorite one but they're all very interesting you know yeah and I mean with with kind of you know can film festival and everything do you take on projects with the hope that you know it's a success or it wins awards or is it more of you know a personal connection you have with the film or the project or just you know does it mean something to you to have the possibility of an award or is that not so much 
you know, something you aspire towards? No, and as a cinematographer, I never thought about that. But as a director, sometimes you have to think, and not because of award, it's just because there are so many elements as a director you have to think about. It's like what you have to do a project for investors. Do they get the investment back, right? I have a responsibility to talk, to, you know, to 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 basically either give something back to the investors because there's a lot of money involved, whether it's hundred thousand to a million to ten million to twenty million, right? There's just there's always money that's not mine. So as director, you gotta have to talk to the producer and, and what their expectation. Do they want this movie to be winning a award and they don't care about investment, or do we want to have just get a voice out or do they want to make money back? So if that's the case, and then you're going to have to think about, do we have those commercial elements or festival elements there? But otherwise, as a director, I feel like I, I feel like I personally believe if, if you are true to yourself and if you truly think you're engaging, if the script is so engaging to myself that I give a hundred percent of it and I have a best team to bring this story on screen, we don't have to think whether they're going to go to the festival or go to the commercial. It will just works itself out, you know, because if it's good, it's good. And then the rest, we have to leave for the other professional, like distributions company and producer to work with their magic. That's something that I don't get involved. That's, that, that's the business side of the film, you know. So right. I think filmmaking is actually quite a, is a line of production that goes really like, you know, um, step by step first you have to have a script and then you have to set the story and then secondly you have to have the investment third you have to have a team fourth you have to make the production and after production post-production and after that it's really in the hands of commercial salesmen technically distribution to market this film whether you're going to go to the cinema or it's going to go to the festival and what it's going to be you know and that's a very is is an industry you know yeah, and it's some it's such a complicated process it seems and there's so many different areas for people to go down and I think it's so interesting uh, to hear from Yeah, and it's so interesting to hear from you who's more on the creative side and I've talked to others who are more on the finance and business side of a film and kind of to see it all come together is such a fascinating experience. Um, Do you have any projects coming up that you want the listeners to be aware of? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I have a few projects coming up, but they're just all in a development stage. Like I said, during COVID, there's not much I can do apart from write. So I set up a company in Beijing because I was here uh, most of the the time. And it was very, you know, kind of alone, like being alone and knowing what to do. So I set up a company. I have a a couple of people helping me and sourcing material. And there's one material I just said to you about international group of people stranded at the airport and wanted to go home. And their home is all different parts of the world, you know, from a stranger and to enemy that they had to fight for one ticket that's left to go into somewhere. And to the next, they have to be a team, a family member to really collaborate together to get their, you know, their themselves back to. So that's one project. Another project I had was, um, well, that's even earlier stage is, um, is instead in China. And it's, it's about mother and daughter. I mean, that's something because now I'm just, 
become a mother. So I'm reassessing that project. I feel like there's a lot more I can give now as a mother, to, you know, whereas I was just a filmmaker before, you know, it wasn't something very personal. And then as a, as a, as a, um, a director for hire, I have a couple of scripts. One is a vampire script and one is about based on a story that a true story happened to an Asian community years ago. You know, there's a few things happening, but nothing might come out tomorrow or anything. But it's just, you know, there's um, it's all in a very development stage of the film. So hopefully we, I will get down filming maybe the soonest the next year. Yeah. Amazing. Is there anything else you'd, want to add before we wrap up um i'm very proud of you thank <laughs> to, you have this channel at such a young age and continue doing so and um, even as experiment during covid you know i think being consistent doing something for over 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 time and it's incredible and it takes a lot of you know not just the interest alone it takes a lot of hard work you know and the belief so I really hope this channel can reach out to more and more Asian, whether it's filmmaker. Is this only a aiming at filmmaking or is this for all everything? Hopefully it, it, it's going to extend to everything. But so far it's focused pretty much just on like filmmakers and creatives. But I hope to get people from other industries. Yeah, and I think it, it would be amazing like that connected with many Asian um, around the world, you know, and to talk about anything like a social issue and sharing stories. And I think nowadays, after COVID, so how I feel is, is unites, uh, uniting together, sharing experiences and sharing lives and sharing all the life. It's just, is the best, you know, and we shouldn't, you, people shouldn't be ever alone. And I think if there's any way I can support young filmmakers, um, especially female film filmmakers and Asian filmmakers. Um, I'm there. I'm here. Amazing. Thank you so much. It was so amazing talking to you.